Hey, what's up, guys? This is John Anik, lead play-by-play voice for the UFC, and you are listening to the Big O Podcast with my man, Julian Ortiz. the owner of the beautiful, healthy, prestigious-looking mustache, best in the game, Mr. John Anik. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's good to be back with you, Julian. I kind of thought you were talking about my Fernando Tatis Jr. <laughs> Padres t-shirt, but, but, but this mustache will certainly accept the compliment. So Listen, uh, I saw you on the live earlier with some technical difficulties with Mr. Paul Felder, and you talked a little bit about your uh, new love for NL San Diego Padres. They've made some big moves. This looks like a year they could, you know, try to take the crown from the Dodgers. How closely do you follow the Padres now that our Boston Red Sox are not doing that well? So our lead pay-per-view producer, Michael LaPlante, one of my best friends, we call him Lappy, is a huge Padres fan. So a few years ago, sort of to align with him and show my support. I started tracking them a little bit and the Red Sox will always have my heart. And I do think in major league baseball, things can turn around quickly. I think this off season has left a lot to be desired, but there's a lot of time between now and opening day. So I am still an eternal optimist when it comes to my Boston Red Sox, but you got to go all in at some point. If you're an organization that has been as championship deprived as the Padres have been. And when John Henry bought the Red Sox seems like a couple of decades ago now, but they were going to stop at nothing to bring a World Series championship to Boston. Yes, things have changed a little bit in terms of the landscape and how they approach things financially now, but I love to see the Padres go all in, you know? And again, I think that, that that's what it takes. Obviously, you need pitching and defense and everything else when the games are, are heightened and at their biggest. But as a fan, right, if I can loosely call myself that, this is what you want to see. You want to see your team push all the chips into the center of the table, especially when you think you have the core to win a, a major championship. So I think they're right there. And I think that's the right thing. They've taken so long to develop and build this talent system that they have that they go and add in a few extra pieces. They're not revamping the roster, but they're adding to what they've created. And they feel that between now and the next probably three to four years is their time. I think it's going to be great to see them slug it out in the NL West with yeah. you know the LA Dodgers who just won the World Series. It's going to be fun to watch the the NL beat up on themselves. I want to see the Boston Red Sox return to glory. They're one or two moves away from being right back in the conversation. So uh, they're never far out of it at any time. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest issue for the Padres, obviously, is the division in which they compete. When Tom Brady was making his decision as to where he was going to play after leaving the New England Patriots, Part of the reason why I didn't necessarily think he would go to Tampa was because the Saints are in that division and the Saints beat the Bucs twice. They're the reason why Tom Brady has to go to New Orleans this weekend, right, and play on the road. Um, not to say they can't get it done. I actually think they got a great chance to beat the Saints, but that's the biggest issue for the for the Padres is just that, that blue and white monster that more often than not is 20 games above you in the standings. And for me being a Toronto Maple Leaf fan, the Boston Bruins is that issue. That is the yeah. Terminator that we run into season after season, playoff after playoff, that all it takes is one time to get through them, and it feels like the weight is lifted off the shoulder. Maybe right. this year, with all the Canadian teams in the singular division, 
this might be the year for the for the Maple Leafs. Who knows? Maybe so. I mean, you know from our last conversation that I have so many friends who are Toronto sports fans and Maple Leafs fans. The King and Bay guys, the Chief who do my suits are up there, and Dave Shaw, one of our UFC executives. So I do think I have softened a little bit as a sports fan in my advanced age, and uh, I would love to see the Maple Leafs break through. I'm certainly in the minority of Bruins fans, but if the Bruins aren't in – like, I do not want the Buffalo Bills – to beat the Baltimore Ravens, right? But I don't have that that animosity towards the Leafs that I do for the Canadians or the New Jersey Devils or the New York Rangers. I just don't have it. It's funny you say that because I find myself this year with our Patriots on the outside looking in, not making the playoffs, just wanting whoever the Bills play to beat them. Like, I don't care who it is. It could be the Browns. It could be the Jets for all that matter. Like, I really don't care. I just don't want the Bills to win. And now I know, I guess, what it's like when people are always rooting against our team for the 20-plus years of dominance. I get it now a little bit, but no way am I ever cheering for the Buffalo Bills. Yeah, can't happen. No, and I feel that same way. I used to have a healthy dislike for the Buffalo Sabres, but then they became so irrelevant for so long that you sort of soften your stance but I hope your Leafs do well not at the expense of my Boston Bruins but uh I actually just before we started talking I played a bet on the New Jersey Devils on opening night against the Bees I'm always betting against my teams trying to purchase wins so we'll see how it goes all right love it love it now you just got out of fighter meetings right leading up we have three cards coming up in Abu Dhabi the return to Fight Island I think this is what your third time there now what is it like for you into these fighter meetings when you have to you know, see these guys? What takes place in these meetings? So it's actually my fourth time here because you may recall, even though this is technically, you're right, Fight Island 3.0, third iteration. But for that extended five-week trip in September and October, I came for Adesanya Costa. Then I went back home and I came again. So uh, right. it's getting old. You know, 15 hours and 41 minutes on a plane is, uh, is getting a little bit old. And I guess the big challenge for the fighter meetings today, DC, Dan Hardy, and I are calling the show on Saturday night, but Dan Hardy has already been here. So he was out of quarantine in the room with the fighters and DC and I had to do it over Microsoft teams from our hotel room. So not ideal, but certainly the fighter meetings were productive. And I think for me, it's most interesting to talk to a fighter like Jocelyn Edwards, who we just got off the phone with a week ago. She's on the outside of the UFC looking in knowing that maybe that phone call could come in. And here she is this weekend. She'll become the first Panamanian woman to fight in the UFC, fighting Wu Yanan. And it's always fun for me to talk to the newcomers who are a little bit wide-eyed as they sit down for for a UFC debut or a second UFC fight. So, uh, you know, some fighter meetings are more fruitful than others. There's no doubt about it. But uh, we did 16 of them today, and uh, I'm glad they're in the can. (laughs) Now, does this just for the first card coming up on Saturday, do you do fighter meetings days prior to all of the cards that are happening on fight island yes so i am only doing this show and then the pay-per-view so i'll do another batch of fighter meetings with dustin and connor and those guys i believe next wednesday i will not be a part of the fighter meetings for the kiesa magni show uh because i'm just working the desk and uh i find it can be too many chefs in the kitchen all these different broadcasters asking questions so i will uh i will lay back in the cut for that one they send us all the notes though so we'll we'll have a, a good idea of what was said Speaking of broadcast, the UFC starts their year with the UFC fight night being broadcast live on ABC. What does this mean for the UFC as brand when it comes to, you know, expanding their reach from just an ESPN to now an ABC? What does that mean for them when it comes to their global development? 
It's a good question. And I think it's a question that we don't know the answer to right now. When we were on Fox, we were on Fox four times a year, five times a year on Big Fox later in that broadcast partnership. But I haven't been told anything in terms of what Saturday night means for our future on ABC. You know, we are partially going up against an NFL playoff game. So I'm very curious to see what type of number we will do. I don't know how quickly this came together. I try to stay in my lane. I don't know why this decision was made for this particular show. Certainly when you look at a main event like Max Holloway versus Calvin Cater, you can understand why they would want to put that on network television. But I think our focus has to be putting our best foot forward maximizing this broadcast so that the ESPN and, and Disney executives have no choice but wanting to give us the slot four or five times a year. So it's a big deal. Maybe it's lost on me at times because I have such a tunnel vision in terms of the broadcast and, and my preparation. Um, but we're cer certainly looking to make the most of it and hopefully it's not a one and done. Now, speaking of your preparation, you're used to being on ESPN Plus or even pay-per-view. Now you have to factor in commercial breaks. How does that factor into your preparation as you prepare for Saturday night's fight? So pay-per-views are the most daunting for me because I am the walking, talking commercial break, essentially, right? So all those promos are me essentially reading commercials over seven hours. I think there was one broadcast where I might have done before EA Sports, UFC 4 reads in one singular telecast i mean you know it's absolutely obnoxious so for me i like those commercial breaks i get to reset a little bit and it does take some of the heavy lifting off of my plate but i treat all of these shows with the amount of respect that they deserve and even though commercial inventory might change or the network might change uh it's all systems go for me and i try not to put too much focus on how many eyeballs how many scripts i have just try to do the best job that I can, and uh, hopefully we don't screw it up on ABC, J.O. <laughs> now, speaking of preparation being professional, you've recently talked about a unique clause in your contract that allows the UFC to terminate your deal without any cause at any time. Was this something new that was added in your extension in 2018, or has this always been a part of your contract? It has been a part of my contract since 2011. There's no way I would allow them in contract two or three to put that language in there, right? Having established myself with the company, if then they say, hey, by the way, we, we can terminate you without cause at any time. So no, uh, that was something that was in my first contract. And I think perhaps maybe because Dana White didn't know exactly what he was getting into and wanted to reserve the right to cut bait if it was not a good fit. But it's unique language to a broadcast contract. I mean, I'll tell you that my agents had never done a sports broadcasting agreement with that type of language in there before they did my deal. So it was a little bit unique, but uh, it serves as a motivator to me. And I, I try not to think too much about the fact that, that my contract is not guaranteed. Well, it keeps you on your toes, right? I mean, obviously, you're a consummate professional. You take pride in everything you do and all aspects of what you do. So it, it definitely is interesting because I've never once seen in anything, whether it's athlete or commentator or analyst at all, where it's at any time you're, you're on the chopping block. But you do you see that as motivation? Like since 2011, were there, was there ever any indications that you were ever close with a comment you made or a broadcast that shoot, I need to really watch what I'm saying or doing. It's a good question. And you're full of them today, J.O. I like that you're hitting <laughs> me hard. I hope the Wi-Fi here in Abu Dhabi is holding up. Okay. It's been a little bit bouncy today, but no, I don't think I've ever been close. I mean, certainly Dana rode me pretty hard early on and uh, 
you know, Joe Silva was a good sounding board for me back in those days because I'm really trying to execute the guy's vision, right? And ultimately, it was a transition for me from broadcast journalist to promoter. I mean, make no mistake about it. I'm a promoter. Yes, I have journalistic components to my job, but I am a promoter. I work for the UFC. I don't work for the network. And I think largely the networks just appreciate their talent, you know? And so when you're working for the network, I think there's a certain amount of network support um, undeniable, uh, unconditional support that you get from a network. So that's been a, a little bit of a challenge for me, but, uh, you know, I try to learn from those, those few instances in which maybe I haven't executed their vision as to why we were on different pages. But, uh, I think it's probably a better question for Dana. How close has Anik really been to getting fired over the last 10 years? Crazy to think I'm coming up on 10 years, but, uh, We've managed to uh, to stay on the payroll, at least for now. Now, it's funny. I always, when we recently saw the John Jones DC, you know, this time, like eight years or 10 years ago, you know, they had that dust up at the press conference. How many times do people mistake you for being the other guy in the middle of that melee trying to separate DC and John Jones? Yeah, it's crazy. I look nothing like him and uh, he has blue eyes and blonde hair. But I think when you shave your head and you have a beard, it happened pretty quickly. And I had been in those settings before, obviously, doing stare downs and being between fighters. So I think it was natural that some people would mistake me uh, for our former PR chief, Dave Schaller. But uh, it is what it is. The one thing I will tell you is uh, somebody forged my signature on a picture of that. And so that I did bring to Dave Schaller's attention. And I just wanted him to know that you can be sure I am not signing this photograph as if it is me. So that was the only thing that really bothered me, you know, that somebody would actually uh, forge my signature, try to sell it uh, on an image that didn't even have me in it. So uh, it is what it is, you know, part of the legacy, I guess, but uh, trying to distance myself from it, I guess, as much as I can. Fair enough. Now, getting to the aforementioned UFC fight night on ABC, and we're looking at the main event between Max Holloway and Calvin Cater. You have Max losing three of his last four fights, including two fairly close controversial decision losses against Alexander Volkanovsky, and then the tussle between him and Dustin Poirier for the interim lightweight championship. Now you also have Calvin Cater, who's coming off back-to-back -back wins, who's won 14 of his last 16, Whose stock is more at risk with a loss on Saturday night? Well, for Max Holloway on paper, looking at the Wikipedia page with three straight red stripes would not be ideal. So I think for Holloway, in terms of a featherweight championship trajectory, this is one that he has to have. Otherwise, I think he'll make a pivot, move up to lightweight, and you'll see him compete at 155 pounds. I think for Calvin Cater, number six in the world, you get an opportunity against the number one contender. This is a fight that you've got to have. And I know on our podcast, Kenny Florian hates when I say, oh, that loss is a two-year championship setback. But I'm telling you, if Calvin Cater loses to Max Holloway without controversy, I don't think you'll see him compete for the featherweight title until 2023. So to me, I think they both have just as much to gain and just as much to lose. I think maybe Cater has a little bit more to gain because if he wins this fight, I think he could idle and wait and get a title shot because he will have beaten the number one contender. But Holloway has said to me, J.O., not only does he think that he's going to move up to 55 and eventually have a long run there, this dude wants to compete at 70 and even 85 before he's done in the UFC, which sounds a little bit crazy, but 
I do think that Max Holloway's future is going to be in the lightweight division. Um, but again, if Max wins this fight, I think there's going to be a healthy appetite to see him run it back with Alexander Volkanovsky if Volko gets by Ortega, because most people believe that that Holloway Volkanovsky series really should be one, one. It could easily be two Oh, the other way as well. I mean, I don't on think a- that I love you, but I had this <laughs> fight 50 to 45 for Volko. So I think in terms of those two fights, and other people had it closer, no doubt about it. But if 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 Holloway had won that first meeting, I think that would have been a far worse decision and far more of a robbery than, than what we saw, you know, last summer. All right. So put on your Merlin's hat, get out your crystal ball. What trilogy fight do we see first? Do we see Holloway Volkanovsky or do we see Shevchenko Nunez? Which one happens in 2021, if either of those happen? I think 2021 might be a tough sell, but I certainly think it's more likely that we see Volkanovsky and Holloway a third time. And I'll say that for a couple of different reasons. Amanda Nunez is 2-0 up on Valentina Shevchenko. And even though the second meeting was close, not unlike Volkanovsky and Holloway, I'm just not sure what her appetite is to give Valentina that third opportunity. You also have to recognize everything that Amanda Nunez has been through. Just because she has been dominant doesn't mean that she hasn't gone through hundreds of hours of training and championship training camps, one on top of the next. I mean, after that fight against Felicia Spencer, she barely got touched, but she could barely walk from kicking so much. So I'm not sure how much she's going to be able to kick for the rest of her career. I'm also not sure how many times she's going to cut down to 135 pounds for the rest of her career. So were Valentina Shevchenko to, to fight for Amanda's featherweight title. I think that's actually more likely as crazy as that might sound to people. I just don't think you're going to see Amanda Nunes defend the Bantamweight championship more than a couple more times. And uh, certainly I would love to see Shevchenko get that chance, but I, I just don't see it happening. Listen, I think the bullet is fantastic. I feel like she's cleaned out her division almost as much as Nunes has cleaned up both of her divisions at bantamweight and at featherweight. And we'll see her fight Megan Anderson uh, coming up shortly in a, in, in a month or so. And it's, it's hard when you're so dominant. It's sort of like the John Jones, especially when he's, you know, at his prime where he's just decimating fighters. And it just seems like there's no answer that the UFC has. The person just does not exist right now to, right. you know, have a shot to take the throne. You know, we looked at Felicia Spencer's match against Amanda Nunes, and now we're going to look at Megan Anderson, who lost to Felicia Spencer. Are we looking at a similar fight, do you think? Or do you think maybe Megan has a few different things to offer than Felicia did in her fight against Amanda Nunes? Well, every time I'm sitting down to call one of these fights, I really try to convince myself (laughs) of the chances of the underdog. And I'll be honest with you. I mean, sitting down with Felicia Spencer and looking at her style and her body of work, I thought she had a great chance and I thought the fight was going to be closer. It was a total domination. I think I had it 50 to 41. I think with Megan Anderson, what is so intriguing is her size, right? I mean, there's no featherweight in the world that can match her frame. So I think that provides an intriguing challenge for Amanda, but Conan Silvera may be the best game planner in all of mixed martial arts. So I think if they believe that the path of least resistance is to, take Megan Anderson down and, and just take that whole reach and size advantage out of the equation that that's what they'll do. If they believe that their easier path to victory is to keep it on the feet with her, then that's what they will do. Um, but I just think that that camp 
with that fighter is such a powerful mix. And let's also not forget, you know, Amanda Nunes started with very credentialed coaches at MMA Masters in Miami, Cesar Carnero and Daniel Valverde. Not to say she wouldn't have realized all the success had she stayed there, but the amount of high-level coaches and the amount of attention that Amanda gets in Coconut Creek, Florida is unprecedented. And it's just going to take the, the best performance of Megan Anderson's career and then maybe a little good fortune as well to slay the dragon. And it's one of those things when you've dominated for so long too, and she just recently had a child, you know, does that shift the focus a little bit as you start to look past your fighting career? You now have something to look forward to that isn't just based on wins and losses and belts and legacy. I think she is cemented to this point. She is the greatest female combat athlete of all time. I don't see anyone right now that even comes close to wearing that crown. We may never see it again, but you have to wonder after maybe a one or two more fights, what the motivation for her might be after cementing herself as the greatest of all time. Well, right. And that's why I think that her retirement will probably come sooner than a lot of people think it will. In terms of her legacy, though, she takes great pride in being the consensus greatest women's mixed martial arts athlete of all time. And that is not a distinction that she wants to go away. And it's a legacy that you could argue, Julian, she puts on the line every time she competes. So if she loses to Megan Anderson, there are going to be people who suggest that she isn't the GOAT anymore. And maybe they mentioned Shevchenko or even Rousey's name creeps back into the mix. I'm not saying all that. I do believe that even with a loss to Megan Anderson, Amanda Nunez's status uh, is entrenched as the greatest women's MMA fighter that I've ever seen. But I think she takes that legacy seriously enough that her effort in those training camps will dovetail with that mentality. I think her baby girl is only going to be a source of motivation and inspiration. I think it's just a health issue, man. You know, like I know Nina and Amanda very well because oftentimes we're flying together after these shows. And we all flew back to Miami after her fight against Felicia Spencer, I believe it was. And uh, she could barely walk, you know, right. she was in a wheelchair getting off the plane. So in a fight, she totally dominated. So I think there's a lot of questions with Amanda Nunes, but, uh, I think win or lose against Megan Anderson, she's the best of all time for me. And uh, if you're asking me, you know, over under five more fights for Amanda, I'd go under. Yeah, I think that I think that's a healthy bet. I, I would probably take the under action on that as well. Just just doesn't seem like the competition is going to be there or be there in time for her to stick around. I mean, she what fought she'll fight maybe twice this year, maybe at most three times, right. depending on, you know, like you said, her health. So five fights puts her in, you know, the two, two and a half year range. Maybe twice this year, but the other factor too is Nina Ansteroff. Now, before Nina, and Nina, of course, is the one who gave birth in this equation, so let's yeah. not lose sight of that. But Nina said to me that she wanted to come back in January of 2021 as a flyweight. Obviously, something changed along the way to the forum, and she is going to stay at strawweight and obviously is going to have a big fight. But that's another part of things, right? Is that Nina still wants to continue her career. And you know, Amanda has a healthy respect for that. So I think you'll see them ding and dong a little bit in 2021. And, and that might mean Amanda keeps a little bit of a leaner schedule. That sounds like one of the greatest power couples in UFC history right there. I mean, Nina could be champion. This is H. And this is Snaps. And this is your boy Chops. When you're done with the big old podcast, why don't you go to the fridge, grab one of those nice cold beers, Sit down in your favorite chair, kick up your feet, and download the Dad Pops podcast. The podcast where dads are being guys, guys are being dudes, and dudes are being dads.
Now, speaking of flying with fighters, you flew to Abu Dhabi on the same flight as Dustin Poirier, who takes on the notorious Conor McGregor at UFC 257. These guys last fought back in 2014, both as featherweights, and have since combined to fight 21 times between their two meetings. Obviously, both fighters have evolved since they were last locked in an octagon together. What are you expecting to see when these two top contenders face off and touch gloves? Man, I get excited just hearing you set up this fight, my man. You know, I am expecting a different fight than the first time around. I mean, I certainly think that Conor McGregor deserves to be entrenched at the as the favorite and about the price that he is at right now. Uh, but Dustin Poirier mentally and physically is a totally different beast. And I think that's why you see a lot of people out there who, who see value on him. I just think it comes down to the confidence in the training room for Poirier, the confidence in the work that he has put in, trusting his skills and trying to just make this a bloodbath, trying to take Connor to deep waters. And I oftentimes wonder when you're fighting a guy like Connor McGregor, not to say that Dustin needs to get on his bicycle for the first three minutes of the fight necessarily, but certainly you would not advise taking the approach that Donald Cerrone took back in January of 2020 when you are fighting a guy like Francis Ngannou or Connor McGregor. Uh, you have to be careful, especially early on with Connor. And I do believe that Connor, in terms of his distance management, might be the best striker in the UFC. So I think it's going to take Poirier's cleanest stand-up performance to win this fight. I do think that he needs to mix up the martial arts and maybe try to change levels. But it's a fascinating matchup, and uh, Poirier is about as mentally tough an athlete as I have been around. So I certainly wouldn't put it past him, but... Uh, Again, I think people lose sight of just how good Conor McGregor is because he hasn't been in an active MMA competing schedule in, in five years. And, you know, Dana White has talked recently about trying to convince Habib Nurmagomedov to fight one last time, chase that 30-0 and record, and he must believe that he can do it because he's not making the Conor Poirier fight for a title, which Marketing 101 says your champion has retired you stick those two on the marquee and it's going to just absolutely kill and maybe you can get into that top five most bought pay-per-views ever. What does the division look like if Khabib doesn't come back when you have basically a lightweight tournament going on? Because on this fight as well is, the, is Michael Chandler fighting in his Octagon debut. What does it look like if we eliminate Khabib from the lightweight division? Well, I think it remains to be seen how the pay-per-view would be impacted, whether or not the belt was on the line. One thing about Dana is that he really has always believed in a meritocracy and competitiveness, even if certain matchmaking decisions don't dovetail with that. You know, he wants the most deserving guys fighting for the title. As far as the landscape of this lightweight division, I think it's good that the belt is not on the line. I think you will obviously have one half of your championship equation with who emerges in this fight. And then you have to see how the rest of the dust settles. Certainly the winner between Chandler and Hooker would have an inside track, but there are a lot of other names out there. Tony Ferguson, right? All he needs is a, a win to put himself right back in the mix. Justin Gaethje, all he needs in my mind is one singular win to put himself back in the mix. Charles Oliveira's won eight in a row. His next fight could be for the title, right? So it's a good problem to have in a lot of respects. But again, I do believe the guys in the lightweight division's top 10, Hooker, Felder, Gaethje, Ferguson, all coming off a loss, 
one win puts you right back in this conversation. So I got my eyes on Hooker and Chandler to see how that fight plays out. Certainly if Michael Chandler goes and knocks out Dan Hooker, you know, which Dustin Poirier wasn't able to do over 25 minutes. If Chandler gets Hooker out of there inside of 15 minutes, I think Michael Chandler's going to have a pretty good case for a title fight, even though a lot of uh, UFC diehards might not like that line of thinking. So the cupboard is the furthest thing from bear, my man. We'll just have to see how it plays out. It's a great problem to have, as you said, for Dana White, who, you know, going into two, year two of this pandemic, you could really say was one of the best, if not the best, when it comes to getting sports back on television and having their athletes compete. I think a lot of other major sports looked at what Dana was able to do and fashioned their plans around it. I think Dana, who said he has some surprises for people who are looking to pirate the upcoming pay-per-views, I'm very interested to see, you know, what sort of new technology or cybersecurity Dana has when it comes to that. Have you heard anything? Has there been any rumblings around what Dana might have been talking about? No. And, and again, I try not to be a gossip mongerer and live in the rumor mill because I got so much goddamn shit on my plate, J.O., that if I start <laughs> thinking about that stuff, it's just a waste of my time. But you are right that he's the hardest worker in the room. He is. And he was built for 2020, as he suggested this week. You know, the way he operates his business makes guys want to run through a wall for him. He was built for succeeding in an environment in which most people would fail. So I wasn't the least bit surprised that, that we were first, you know, even if some of us staffers even had some trepidation early on, you know, in April of 2020, when it looked like uh, I was going to have to find my way from South Florida to Lemoore, California, and wasn't exactly sure how I was going to get there and how many different airports I was going to have to fly into. Um, but really not unlike Bill Belichick, Dana White just has this, this way uh, of making people just want to go to war for him. And uh, I'm not the least bit surprised that, that he was able to have such a big 2020. Now shifting gears. I know we got to get you out of here. Uh, we're pressed up against time a little bit, but before I let you go, I got to ask you one last thing, and this is going back to your Boston roots. Everyone knows that you're the Boston guy. We talked about it off the top of the podcast. What are your top five Boston movies? Top five Boston movies. Oh my gosh. So I am not your source when it comes to movies, but I will give <laughs> you my, my top one is Goodwill Hunting. And I've only seen it twice because I want it to be fresh every time I go back and watch it. So I remember I watched it the first year that it was released. And then I wouldn't watch it again for like five years because it was so good that I wanted it to be fresh the second time I watched it. So, uh, you know, I like the departed, you know, there's a lot of good Boston movies out there, but, uh, kind of put me on the spot with that one. Um, there's so many amazing movies, you know, I even like the town, which I know some people didn't like that one necessarily, but, uh, the conversation for me always begins and ends with goodwill hunting. And I might have to watch it a third time, actually, when I get home from flight Island. You just named three of the top five I had in uh, what my. What do you got? I mean, what do you I, got? I had I had Goodwill Hunting, I had The Departed, yeah. I had Fever Pitch because obviously as a Red Sox yeah, fan, I just hold that, and then The Town and The Fighter. The Fighter was the last one that I yeah, had. Yeah, I like The Fighter too. I really like The Town, so I feel good. I feel better about my ability to analyze motion pictures, given the fact that you you seem to like The Town. Because <laughs> when I tell people I like that movie, some people uh. Some people think I'm crazy, so we're aligned there.
that was in the Ben Affleck renaissance when he decided yeah. to come back and he killed it. I love that. Jeremy Renner, amazing yeah. flick. Yeah. Uh, John, it's been a pleasure once again catching up with you. If people want to hear more from you on Fight Island, more in-depth breakdowns and analysis of the upcoming UFC fights and a program that rivals the departed in terms of colorful language, what should they be checking out for their education? I got to stop dropping these F-bombs on the Anakin Florian <laughs> podcast. It's getting a little bit out of control, but that is the platform that I get to really just be myself. And if I'm really being myself and just talking to my best friend, Kenny Florian, if I'm not cussing that I'm not being me, I'm trying to perform or be a broadcaster, right? Like if Kenny and I are talking on the phone as two native Bostonians, it's, it's just one cuss after the next. So the Anakin Florian podcast is on our YouTube channel every Monday. You can also access it on Spotify and iTunes and anywhere else that, that podcasts are ingested. And uh, I'll be doing a show with Paul Felder this week. We do a little side shoulder program called FNA. We try to do an Instagram live actually from Abu Dhabi today, but I was told that they get blocked uh, in the United Arab Emirates. So we're going to do a little uh, UFC 257 preview either later this week or next week on the Anakin Florian podcast, YouTube channel. And uh People seem to like the behind the scenes stuff on Instagram. So I've been trying to churn out more of that here on Fight Island and uh, plenty of time to do so in quarantine, man. I'm sitting here. I got 18, 18 hours left before I get to get out of this godforsaken room. There you have it. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and leave a review for the Big Old Podcast and the Anakin Florian Podcast available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts with full videos up on YouTube. Make sure you hit that like button, subscribe for future episodes. And for my guest, John Anik, I'm your host, Julian Ortiz. Thank you for watching, everyone. See you next time. Thank you.